This is the Evergreen Empire. Green grow the forests and fair flow the streams. The gentle deer grazes, the wild blossom gleams. From ocean wave raging to mountain serene. All nature's proclaiming our land's evergreen. Welcome to Columbia Conversations. I'm Felix Bennell, editor of Columbia Magazine for the Washington State Historical Society. On this episode, we speak with Dr. Michael McKenzie, professor of philosophy and religion at Cuca College in Cuca Park, New York. He's author of a piece in the winter 2021-2022 edition of Columbia Magazine about the wintertime forced relocation of northern Paiute people from southern Oregon to Washington Territory. That caravan of people would have been easily visible at Fort Simcoe, which is further up the valley, because of the black dots, dark dots coming down the hills, the white hills very slowly, and it would have been over a mile long. Joining us by phone from his home in Oregon is Michael McKenzie. Michael, how are you doing today? Doing great, Felix. Thanks. When you contacted me with the uh, pitch on this story, I hadn't ever heard this story before about this, you know, this forced march or forced uh, relocation. Mm-hmm. And I wonder, how did you first come across the story? Well, that's a great story in itself. Um, I was just finishing up my book on the Methodists in the Northwest. And one figure I kept running into was James Wilbur, who was the Indian agent at the Yakima Reservation from 1864 to 1882. And there was a story that kept popping up in the research in the archives about a winter day in 1879 when he was completely taken off guard by hundreds of northern Paiutes um, showing up in uh, the Fort Simcoe, where his headquarters was, and he was forced to deal with them with no advance warning, no extra rations, no lodging, none of that. And he was plainly horrified at what he saw. Uh, He saw hundreds of people, men, women, and children, um, in various states of, um, some in starvation, some had frostbite, many had died, and he sent a telegram the next day and to his superiors in D.C., and he clearly was trying to deal with these extra mouths to feed, and he was horrified at what he had seen. And it originally comprised a chapter in my book, and the editor at the University of Nebraska Press said, that's a great story, but it's not the story for this book. It belongs in another venue. Hmm. And I saw her point, and uh, she was right. And so I just sort of excised it out from the manuscript at the time and sort of set it on the back burner and just waited till the right opportunity. And then when my book came out, uh, which it comes out this month, I said, you know what, I want to um, revisit that. So back last summer, I started thinking about what will I do with that story? And I thought of Columbia right away. I had written for you guys before and it seemed like a ripping good story, and I thought you'd be interested. So that's why I, I gave you the call. Boy, that's great. That's like a commercial for other aspiring Columbia authors out there. If, if you are in similar circumstances, in, in the sound of my voice, and an, a, an editor suggests excising a chapter from your book about Northwest history, we would love to have that in Columbia. And it is a perfect fit, because we, we sometimes publish excerpts from books. You know, we don't, we're not afraid of duplicating stuff that's been published someplace else, but I love it. This is a perfect combination when... You have this larger work that's mm-hmm. that's out right now, and then this particular section that fits right into Columbia. So we're we're grateful for that. And that was one of the that that 
part you described, that's one of the most arresting visuals from the early part of the story where there's, you know, in the distance. And I've spent a lot of time in eastern Washington. I don't know if I've seen this specific vista that you describe in your story, but this mm-hmm. notion of looking in the distance and seeing, you know, a, essentially a chain, like a, 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 a tray of people coming down the trail, obviously a very strange happening that time of year, that part of the country, and that, you know, that era. It's a very strange, strange event yeah. underway. Well, the first thing I the first thing I did was check the weather reports across the country for the winter of 1878 to 1879, and it was brutal. It was brutal all across the northern half of the country. And so, uh, when the party, when the Paiutes arrived in the Yakima Valley, uh, Sarah Winnemucca, one of the the people on the the journey, she describes the snow as being waist deep. So you have three foot snow on the level uh, that caravan of people would have been easily visible at Fort Simcoe, which is further up the valley, even though it was 15 or 20 miles further up the valley because of the black dots, dark dots coming down the hills, the white hills very slowly. And it would have been over a mile long. So it would have been a really arresting um, spectacle and potentially one that could be dangerous concerning the, the Bannock War that had taken place the summer before. So I'm sure there were people at the fort saying, who are these people and why are they coming here and why so many? Because uh, Wilbur, the Indian agent, had absolutely no warning this was happening. And, you know, there are countless dark chapters in the history of what's now Washington and Oregon and Idaho, the old Oregon country, in terms of the, you know, the the butting up against the you know, Europeans coming from elsewhere mm-hmm. to either look for, you know, fur in the 18th century to stake a claim mm-hmm. to land in the early 19th century. And then sort of as the, the military arrives here and missionaries are coming here in great numbers, you know, the, the, the head-on collision was sure to happen and happen again and again in multiple venues. The, the reason why these people were forced to go north from where they were in Oregon up to that part of Washington, what, what was actually going on? What was the, who forced them up here and, and why did that happen? Well, that's a great question because it's not the usual, um, the usual, uh, players are farmers that want the land uh, that the natives are on, and so they devise ways, they talk to the government or the army to help them evacuate, to relocate the natives to somewhere else. That happened all across the West, as you uh, just mentioned. This was more uh, because of the Bannock War the year before. Uh, Wilbur had been sent down there to get the supplies from the old Malheur Reservation. And he noticed that he had some Yakimas with him as Teamsters because he was had a bunch of wagons that he was coming back with. And the looks that he got from the ranchers and the towns he passed through, like Canyon City, Oregon, and down towards Burns, convinced him that he knew that the uh, uh, settlers and the ranchers down there didn't much like the Paiutes even though the Paiutes had little or nothing to do with the Bannock War that year. And so uh, I'm sure that Wilbur's own mind, if he would have been asked, would have said, well, if they would have stayed there, things would have been worse for them. But the Army is the driving force behind this because the Malheur Reservation was a um, sort of a a prime example of mismanagement. Um, The Indian agent there was not well-liked. He did not succeed. And so it was not succeeding in doing what the reservations were supposed to do, whether right or wrong. That's, that's another issue. 
And so it was just, uh, it was a failure. And so they decided to close that reservation. And then with all the natives, the, the Pai, northern Paiutes there, they would have to be relocated somewhere. And without Wilbur's knowledge or consent, they decided to relocate them on the Yakima because Wilbur's uh, methods and techniques had worked so well there. Um, and those are, again, for different reasons they had worked well. And so they said, well, what's six or 700 more people? And they just decided on their own to make that march. And the Indian, the Bureau of Indian Affairs, the BIA, and the Army uh, agreed. And that's what the driving force was. It, you know, it almost, I don't know, I don't want to evoke this, just lightly evoke the notion of sort of the whole Nazi thing and the, you know, the banality of evil and everything. But this kind of has that sort of um, bureaucratic kind of disregard for humanity that is marked in some of these really awful chapters of world history. Is that is that going too far to describe it that way? Well, it might be a little bit just for the, you have to at least add the, the difficulty of communication. Um, you know, the telegraph was still spotty in eastern Oregon and eastern Washington. Yakima was a village of just a few hundred people. And so uh, you, if, you, if Wilbur needed to send a telegraph, he had to go to the Dalles uh, to send it. Uh, and so there was the communication was not good. And so you, you start there and you say, OK, uh, could they have done this better? Yes. Um, and what in the world were they thinking taking this route in the middle of winter? That is there's no way you can defend that. There, there's no way that anybody could look at this uh, relocation and say this was a good thing. Uh, and you put it in the middle of winter, then you becomes you're, you're verging on the criminal uh, them because you go through some of the coldest, most rugged terrain in eastern Oregon, and it's no picnic in eastern Washington either, but especially in the Blue Mountains of eastern Oregon, to send 600 people on caravans over what amounted to a pack trail masquerading as a road in the middle of winter was just terrific. And you've actually gone back and uh, sort of retraced some of the steps of that. Of the, yes. Yeah. What's that like? Yeah. Well, I went back in the winter and in the summer uh, but uh, to see both seasons. But uh, knowing, because at this time I thought this was going to be a chapter in the book, uh, and since the um, relocation uh, took place in, in January and February, I wanted to see what that place was like in January and February. So I used the, if you go on the old, uh, or the, what's now the uh, BLM, Bureau of Land Management site, they used to be known as the General Land Office, the GLO, uh, and so you can find the maps that the surveyors had drawn up in the 1860s and 70s and 80s, and the old route is marked. So I, I printed out a bunch of those and uh, took my trusty four-wheel drive and went out there. And I started at the about the John Day River, and I also started first in Burns and worked my way north. And you pretty much follow Highway 395. And then you go down into the Canyon City area, and then pretty soon you have to go and cross the John Day River, and then you go up from there. And so I was able to get on some significant sections of the road, and what I found immediately on the north side, things were still all ice. Hmm. And so then I was, <laughs> I remember thinking, what the heck am I doing here? Um, I, I, I could get myself in real trouble, because yeah, whenever you go up, you have to come down. <laughs> But on the southern exposures, the sun, because it is, you know, eastern Oregon, it does get sunny in January. 
uh, it would melt the ice and would turn these roads to gumbo. Mm. And so my tires filled up with this gumbo stuff. And there was a few times I could barely slow down. And so there's a, there's more than once I, I said, this is probably not the smartest thing I've ever done. Uh, I've gone on a lot of bad roads with four-wheel drives. And th- this this clearly would have been a just a horrible route um, for wagons. And this was designed for, you know, mules and pack trains and miners. It was never, uh, even though despite its title, it was never supposed to be a real road. So, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, and I know in in talking to the um, Northern Paiute and some descendants of people who were in that forced relocation, there seems to be a real, um, I don't know, mixed feelings about because number one, this event is not very well known in in history. Again, I, I, I acknowledge I hadn't heard about it until I heard from you last summer. Um, yeah. And there's a there's sort of a, I mean there's there's a ill feeling about the fact it's not better known, but there's also a certain protectiveness of the route and any potential artifacts or human remains or anything that might still be uh, evidence for this actually happening. And I don't think the um, the descendants have figured out exactly what they want, the commemoration or the, um, I'm, not, I'm not even sure what the exact word would be, but some, some way of, uh, of reckoning this and making sure the story doesn't get lost. Um, because mm-hmm. I mean, as far as I know, there's mm-hmm. no monument. There's no, this isn't marked on recent maps. There's, it's not, it's not no. uh, documented in very many books that I've come across. No, you can find it on the internet, of course. And there are uh, books about Sarah Winnemucca that mention it prominently. Um, and there are a few signs that talk about the Malachir Reservation down in eastern Oregon. But once you get on between Fort Simcoe and the Yakima Valley, which, of course, I grew up in the Yakima Valley, but between there and the uh, Fort Harney there in, near Burns, there's no indication of, of where it is. There's no modern signs, um, maybe one or two, um, but there's not much mention made of it. So once they arrived at Fort Simcoe, it took a little bit of time, but there actually was a period where you could say the uh, the experiment or the forced relocation was was succeeding in a way by some measures of that time. I think that's that's a fair assumption, and uh, I think some of that is due to the geography of the reservation. Um, I grew up in Grandview, which is just off the reservation to the east, but from Mabton to Hera and Brownsville and uh, Union Gap on the um, south side of the Yakima River, along the uh, along the river, has really good farmland, extremely good farmland. And so, unlike other reservations in the Southwest, which were piles of rock and horrifically chosen, um, you know, to to be almost criminally negligent, the reservation in that part, the Yakima Reservation, was really uh, fertile. And so Wilbur had done okay as the Indian agent getting people, getting the Yakimas to farm. Now there were incentives there, and that's sort of what I go to or talk about in my book. Uh, There was plenty of good reasons that Yakimas had for attending church uh, at Fort Simcoe because they would get the better plows, the Methodist uh, Yakimas would get the better farming implements that could get better housing and things like that. There was a real gift exchange there, and the Yakimas were used to that. Hmm. But besides that, 
And the eastern part, down by Granger in the valley, there was a whole bunch of undeveloped, uh, still good land. And so Wilbur envisioned sort of a reservation within a reservation where the northern Paiutes could occupy the land down by Granger, what is now uh, what's called the Satis area. And so that's where he had them dig the famous Paiute ditch, which remnants are still visible today. And so what he envisioned was a cluster of natives living in sort of a agricultural harmony, a utopia down in the lower valley, which he thought his Yakimas were enjoying in the upper valley, if that makes sense. Huh. And so uh, the Yakimas had done okay because they had figured it's it's sort of an interesting arrangement that Wilbur and the Yakimas had. I think each of them knew what the other was doing, and I think each of them was okay with that. Um, I think Wilbur probably understood. He knew why a lot of Yakimas were attending his Methodist church, and I think the Yakimas, they really understood if they behaved a certain way, they would get rewarded. But the like I say in my book, the Yakima culture was, like most Native cultures, was a gift culture that you showed up, if you're going to spend time on their land, you'd show up with, with gifts. And that's sort of what the Whitmans never caught on down, you know, with the Cayuse. So, you know, when Wilbur tried to set this up, he was at the twilight of his career, you know, 1880. He would retire in two years. So his idea was, and I had an informant at that time, a, a local uh, man who lived near Hera, and he showed me where the original lodgings were built for the Paiute and he showed me the Paiute ditch and hmm. he had all these stories he since passed away this was probably 15 years ago when he showed me all this wow and so um the story of their relocation was not all bad as far as what happened at Yakima um but at Yakima was uh, the reservation was never their home and the pull of home uh, really overrode even the uh fertile uh agricultural possibilities of the Yakima Valley. And so how long were most of them there before they headed south again? Well, they arrived, like as, as we've talked about, in uh, February of 1879, and they made a couple of different uh, escape attempts. One was relatively small um, in the 18, I want to say, 80 or 81. And then in 1882 was the major one. And so they, they started trickling back, but then in the, the second uh, time they left to go home, almost half, I think I figured it out, 40%, something like that, left. And they was pretty clever. They told Wilbur they wanted to uh, buy fish and to fish at Salilo Falls. And as you know, that's there on the Columbia Gorge, mostly accessible on the Oregon side. And so they that would put them... Um, on the Oregon side of the Columbia. And so sure enough, they went down there and except they never came back and they never went to Celilo and they started heading back. And when Wilbur found out he had been hoodwinked, he was really upset because now those natives were his responsibility. And that's the way the army and the BLM or the BIA looked at that. And so um, he started firing off telegraphs. It was a virtual, he, he was a politician like all federal employees were back then because this was before any kind of bureaucracy. This was all uh, done with patronage. 
Yeah. You know, and he had met Lincoln and he was friends with Lincoln's personal physician. And <laughs> so Wilbur knew how to, to get things done. So as soon as the uh, Paiutes uh, left the second time, he, he became a blizzard of sending out telegraphs or telegrams to his boss, to the sheriff of Wasco County in the Dalles. And one of them was to the ferry boat, uh, the ferryman there at Rockland. He says, please do not let any more Paiutes cross the river. But it was sort of like bolting the door after the horses had left. Well, I mean, it's I mean, it's an interesting or you know important, valuable, literal chapter in Northwest history that's you know ripped from your book. And tell me about your book that's out. And tell me about the the bigger book that's out now. And what that's about? Well, that's uh, I first started writing uh, almost twenty years ago on Wilbur, because I was teaching as I am now at Cuca College in uh, New York, and Wilbur was born and raised in Lowville, which is in the fringes of the Adirondacks on the Tug Hill Plateau in New York, and he ended up, uh, his most famous posting was as Indian agent in the Yakima Valley, and I said, geez, that's where I grew up, and so I started writing about him, but the more I started writing about Wilbur, the Methodist Indian agent, the more I found out that the real story was not so much just about him, but about what happened to the Methodists in the Northwest, Um, because as a native of the Northwest, I knew that we never, my friends and I, we didn't really take religion all that seriously growing up. <laughs> yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah. You know, we weren't we weren't against it. Yeah. You know, it's not. You know, we didn't hate it. We just 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 ah, you know, <laughs> and 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 so the Northwest. The more I got into it, the Northwest has always been that way, <laughs> and the Methodists just had the bad luck to be the first ones. <laughs> I mean, they were ahead of Whitman <clears throat> uh, by a few years. It's Jason and, Lee, right? Yes, Jason Lee, yeah. 1830, uh, 1834. Huh. And so, uh, yeah, they never really succeeded, even at the height of their powers uh, in the East. Wow. And so that became the story. That became the topic. And so I titled my book, A Country Strange and Far, <laughs> because part of the other things besides geography that stymied the Methodists was the immigration. The Oregon Trail took a real toll on the faith of everybody who took that journey. Perhaps the most uh, poignant uh, quote is from Narcissa Whitman herself. She was writing her father, and she missed him terribly, as she missed her sisters. And she said, well, you know, every Christian has learned to swear by the end of the Oregon Trail. <laughs> yeah. So that, that that's why that's why the Northwest is the way it is. That's you know, obviously the indigenous influence of thousands of years. But then that weird anomalous uh, Methodist getting here first, and then all the other missionaries who struggled the way they well, did. Well, it's really strange, you know, Felix. It's strange that um, Christianity got its start. I mean, I you know I went to a seminary, seminary grad and stuff, so I've taken a lot of religious history. Um, Christianity responded very well to Roman direct persecution by the Roman Empire, you know, getting killed by the thousands and being put to death and tortured and all that didn't seem to hurt it. But what hurts it or what has proven to hurt it is migrations. It's really hard to take migrations for long distances and not have that affect your faith. And I came to find out there's a whole cottage industry about how long migrations affect religious belief. And as I'm sure you know, the Northwest is an immigrant region. Everybody's from somewhere else, you know. 
It sounds like what you've got, what you put together for your book is fabulous. What's the title of it? Who's it published by and where is it available? It is A Country Strange and Far, The Methodist Church in the Pacific Northwest, 1834 to 1918. Uh, It's come out this month, January of 2022, and University of Nebraska Press. Well, congratulations on that, and thank you for writing your piece for the current issue of Columbia. That's the winter 2021-2022 issue. And um, it's uh, nice to talk to you today, and thanks for taking time to talk to us on Columbia Conversations. Well, thank you, Felix, and thanks for having me on. Thank you to Michael McKenzie for speaking with me for this episode of Columbia Conversations from the Washington State Historical Society. Dr. McKenzie's article about the forced relocation of northern Paiute people is in the winter 2021-2022 edition of Columbia Magazine. His book, A Country Strange and Far, A History of the Methodist Church in the Pacific Northwest, 1834-1918, is available now from University of Nebraska Press. For more information about Columbia Magazine or to subscribe, please visit WashingtonHistory.org. I'm Felix Bunnell.